This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Great Ideas, a series about the ideas that have shaped the world we live in, created in association with Victoria University of Wellington. I'm Megan Whelan, and in this series we'll look at what it takes to change our perspective, consider why these ideas still matter, and what happens next. In 1859, Charles Darwin published his monograph on the origin of species by natural selection. It was priced at 15 shillings, and the first run was 1,250 copies. But this 500-page book changed the way we think about the natural world and remains controversial to this day. It articulated in great detail the very simple idea that species were not the product of intentional design, but evolved as a consequence of scarce resources, variation in the species, and heritability of traits. In this episode, we'll explain natural selection and discuss the reception of the idea over the last 150 years. I'm joined by a panel of experts from the university and I've asked them to tell me their favourite species. I'm Rebecca Priestley. I'm in the Science and Society group at Victoria and I teach history of science and science communication. I'm really fascinated by New Zealand's bird life so I'm going to pick the hoia as my favourite species. I think there's some really interesting stories about uh, the cultural significance of the bird and the series of events that led to it becoming extinct. And I'm uh, Joe Zuccarello. I'm in the School of Biological Sciences, and I'm an evolutionary phycologist. That's a person who studies seaweeds. And I teach uh, evolution and cell biology and a few other courses. And my favorite organism is a thing called Bostrichia. It's a red alga, a red seaweed that grows in mangroves. And it's my favorite organism because I've been studying it for 20 years. And... Uh, it, I'm interested in the speciation within the genus, how species come about and where they're found and how they're different from each other. I'm Joseph Bobolia, and I teach in the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences at Victoria University. I work on evolution of religion and evolution of cultures more generally. Uh, my favorite species is humans. Um, uh, it might seem like obvious or a cop-out, um, uh, but uh, humans are fascinatingly diverse. Um, we've managed to inhabit nearly every terrestrial habitat on the planet. We did so quickly uh, because we have cultures and technologies. Um, and the ability to learn and to transmit our learning and to become uh, super organisms is what threatens not only us, but uh, so many other species right now. Um, so, so much hangs in the balance for us right now, and I think it's important to understand us to, to help figure out where we're going, make it a better direction. 
So on that particularly grim note, <laughs> one of the... That's hopeful, yeah, I hope. One of the other um, podcasts the other, in the series that we talked about, we talked about the, Ref- the Reformation. And mm. one of the things uh, that we didn't <clears throat> get to discuss is the way that uh, the ideas that Darwin had came out of the Reformation, the intellectual rigour that came out of the Reformation um, and the separation between uh, what the church was saying and what other people were saying, um, what in this particular instance scientists were saying, in some ways grew out of the Reformation. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, and uh, with a nice footnote. Um, the uh, Prior to the Reformation um, was the invention of probabilistic thinking, and the beginnings of a way of thinking about the world which allowed for uncertainty. And um, prior to those inventions, um, uh, there were um, tendencies to accept authority uh, and um, to follow authority. With the beginnings of probability and the challenges to authority, uh, now they didn't come from science, they actually came from social pressures and a whole lot of other um, uh, 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 factors, technology, the emergence of printing, um, the ability to transmit messages quickly and accurately. Um, but that whole um, period of human history uh, resulted in the emergence of um, a way of thinking that uh, allowed allowed us to be first uncertain and then after that to, to begin to think about how, how can we become more certain? How can we test our ideas? How can we begin to, if you and I disagree, what sort of evidence can we begin? Can we gather that would bear on that disagreement? And even if we can't persuade each other, might we become might we become closer in our thinking? So there there was a whole, uh, I guess, whirl of um, transformations that happened in the early early modern period. One of which was the Reformation. And. Th- what you're describing there essentially is the scientific method, right? That's that's the where scientific the scientific method, method comes out. Which is, out of. by the way, one of the paper, one of the studies we're working on now, uh, and Joe might uh, be interested in this, is to to look at speciation in um, in uh, d- uh, Protestant denominations, because of course, um, once once you have the Reformation, you have the beginnings of new religious movements, and they splinter, and you have more religious movements. And um, a question um, we can ask is. Um, uh, given all these religious movements, what's causing them to split, right? And um, to, to address these debates, um, we can apply methods that are used to study algae and lots of other things to begin to, to test ideas about splitting. And I won't say more than that because uh, it's a long still story, but and we're still doing <laughs> it. It's not out yet. But um, um, there, there you have... Um, um, uh, one of the, um, I, I think, uh, again, it's sort of wonderful um, outcomes of this way of thinking that uh, uh, Darwin initiated, um, uh, at least in this kind of rigorous scientific way. And, leaning in. Yeah. and turning in on... Yeah. Well, I, think, I mean, what yeah. you say is correct, you know, and I think it's, it's the idea of questioning. And I think yeah. questioning even came before the Reformation. Of yeah, course, there was sure. always authority, and the idea was... You know, people questioned not only authority but questioned the things they see in the natural world and how to go about trying to figure out what those things mean and how they came about. And I think that questioning obviously in- increased once the church maybe lost a little bit more, less of its power to control things. And certainly with the scientific method and this diversity that came in ways of thinking, that increase in questioning increased. Right, there was an increase in question. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think it's that that kind of drove the scientific method, drove our trying to understand what the world's about 
and how it came about. And I think that Darwin is in that in that line. You know, since the Greeks and the Romans, I mean, there's always been a history of people trying to understand how the world came to be the world the way it is. You know, it's either a story or it's questioning and coming up with hypotheses. And I think the only thing Darwin did really well is figure out the mechanism. Right? So let's talk about that mechanism. What was it that he said? You can answer this. Well, I mean, he said lots of things. Uh, I think he, he made observations, right? He observed that things are variable, right? There's variation in the world. It's, it's really quite simple, right? The idea that there's variation and that variation is inherited, and that variation somehow leads to different reproductive outcomes. And it's not a planned thing. It's just in that particular environment, with that particular characteristic, you leave 0.01 more offspring than somebody else. And with time, with numbers, and enough generations, you get more of those characters with time. And it's not a, you know, this is, I think, what people always forget. It's not a progression towards perfection. It's not a plan. It's just surviving in the environment you find yourself in. And because of the variation you have, you leave more or less offspring. And they increase in numbers compared to other variants in the population. There's an incredible uh, parallel there with talking about revolutions. The the theme that has appeared in these six episodes is Mm. that revolutions don't stop. So they continue going. And one of the questions I asked one of the groups was, um, are, are all these revolutions leading us to a particular utopia? Um, you know, are we, are we heading for what I described as a Star Trekian universe? But evolution would have us that, no, that's not what we're heading for. There's not, we're not heading for perfection. That's right. We're not only heading for perfection, but we probably don't even know which direction we're going in, right? In many cases. In revolutions too, but also in biology. Yeah. I mean, it's a long time. And there were lots of other things that Darwin thought about, you know, and uh, one of the things that was very important was this idea of long time, right? the idea that things don't happen quickly. And what we see today, what we see in our lifetime, what we see since the Reformation is not the history of life. Mm. It's much longer than that, and it's been going on for a lot longer. For billions of years. Billions. Did he posit billions of years? No, he didn't. Um, Charles Lyell, who was a colleague of his, sort of knew it was hundreds of millions maybe. Right. But yes, nobody knew it would be that old. What um, the world that so that idea that very idea even just the time but mostly the the not intelligent design part of that mm. the not designed part of that that was controversial at the time. Yeah, you can almost say it's controversial right now. Yep. Yes, and and you know Darwin had there was two threads to this. One was descent with modification, right? This idea that we, the reason birds look like birds is because they had an ancestor that looked like birds. And why birds all look the same is because they shared a common ancestor. And that was a real dope moment, you know. Everybody's, of course. And the other thing that was much more controversial, and it took a while before it was believed, was this idea of natural selection. It was produced by this non-guided, random, random process, at least a process that doesn't have a direction. It's just surviving in the environment you're in. And that was, took a long time for many scientists to believe. Right? There were lots of other theories about you know, the Lamarckian idea that things were striving for betterment, the idea that you were fixed in particular types of development, all kinds of stuff. But the idea that it was just natural selection, it was just surviving in the particular environment you find yourself in today and leaving slightly more offspring than somebody else. And if that environment continues for long enough, you just change with time. And so that's completely non-guided. 
And so when he got on the Beagle, which is just the best name for a ship ever, <laughs> um, uh, how did he was was this idea fully formed for him when he got the when you know when he went on that trip or where was where was the the world's knowledge and his personal knowledge at that point? Right. Who wants to say that? Well, I don't think it was fully formed. He did write, very soon after he came back from the Beatles, started writing his species book, which had the beginnings of this idea. There were plenty of people that had ideas about long Earth and transformation of species, the idea that species changed versus the biblical idea that species were always the same. In fact, his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, was one of these people that had this idea that organisms could change with time. One of the things he was really, um, really... uh, taken with was the natural theology book of um, Priestley. Was it Priestley? No, Paley. Uh, P- Paley, yes. Paley. Thank you, John. You nearly got credited with <laughs> yeah, an amazing yeah, yeah. achievement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this idea that, you know, it, things were designed because things look like they're designed. And so I don't think his ideas came, his idea of natural selection came from that. But what's also more interest, interesting is that his idea came, somebody else came up with the exact same idea. So there must have been, as they say, something in the water. And his idea that that's Wallace, isn't it, that mm. came up with the idea at the same time? Well, mm. essentially at the same time. And they, they well, shared later, a, But published it. But published it at the same time. And sent a letter, yeah. which Darwin argued, or reported to Lyle, who's coming back into the story of the geologist who had this conception of time, which suddenly biologists could work with. The Earth is much older than we thought. Um, so Darwin comes up with these ideas on the Beagle, and um, the documents are public. You can go online and look at his little sketches and drawings where he's making trees. And um, with astonishment, we may all be netted together as these insights observing um, not just variation but systematic variation as he's traveling across the Pacific uh, and, and in other places and thinking in light of that time, how might that variation have worked as, as you get migrations and then what might that variate why might that variation have happened well because there are features of the environments that are selecting in the way that Joe just men- mentioned um, but then he sits on it and I think this is you know I, one of the most wonderful kind of stories I guess prior to that there's the story of Darwin himself who has a degree in theology um, and uh, himself uh, wasn't a um, didn't have a degree in science, but just was a keen observer. A gentleman naturalist, I thought. I, I well, read had money. He started out in medicine at Edinburgh, um, was pulled out uh, because he was not doing well. <laughs> didn't do well in theology either. But just so it's, uh, I think, encouragement to um, young folk who find themselves bored with school. He, he hated Latin and memorization, but was absolutely fascinated by the world around him and a keen observer of, of detail absolutely impeccable um, observer of uh, the world around him. And he um, begins to reflect on the, the theory just describes simple mechanism, you know, constraint, variation, inheritance, giving rise to all of this, yeah, but sits on it. And why? You know, why sit on it? Why sit on it for 20 years? And no one knows why. There's, there's oh. competing theories. He did go off for a while and study barnacles in quite some depth, mm. and it seems Seven that he years. was trying to you know, to some extent, test out his theory. And, and I guess to some extent he wanted to be very sure of what he was saying because it was quite a remarkable thing. Which is exactly what you would want him to do, exactly yeah. what scientists would want him to do, right? Go and actually do the experiments. Mm. 
Well, they weren't experiments well, at that point. The observations. It was just deeper observations. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's a, a key, key insight into how science is driven because we tend to think of science as driven by experiments where you, you test two hypotheses, you create conditions. And in Darwin's case, it begins with this puzzle. How do I make sense of this puzzle? What's the best explanation for the distribution of species? Um, and for the for design, obviously, it's not just the and and what are the arguments against it? And so, um, um, I I think we can all relate to this when um, he had trouble kind of remembering the arguments against it, right? So he'd have to write those down and then think of counterexamples and obtain more information from naturalists. He was very interested in um, animal breeders which is a kind of selection, right? Well, of course it's natural if we think yeah. <laughs> humans are part of nature. And, and, and how rapidly can we get change occurring as a result of, of, of human intervention? Um, and, you know, um, anticipating the, the objections. But I think that that has to be part of the story. Um, but 20 years, yeah. That's a good long while. When are you gonna, when and he was, gonna... But he was publishing other things while that oh, yeah. 20 years was... I forget yeah. how many books, but the Barnacle yeah. books, I think, was seven years in massive yeah. volume. And his Voyage of the Beagle was a right. very famous book. Uh, mm. He wrote on coral reefs. Um, uh, what else? Yeah, before... He was, a, he was a well-regarded yes. naturalist apart from any of this. Um, um, and people had known, of course, Lyle had known... And there's a um, so Lyle gets Darwin's letter, which is um, obviously Wallace had known because Wallace had written to Darwin in a very polite way, saying, "Hey, I, I know you're thinking about um, evolution and design, and here's what I've come up with, and um, this is Darwin's life life's work." And he said something like, uh, "You're right." And it's gonna it's gonna steal my thunder, but you're right. So we should publish yeah, this or something so, like uh, that. Uh, yeah. Well, I think he was extremely polite, and yes. rather than and and went to Lyle with this view that we need to publish Wallace first. And of course, Lyle said, "Well, we'll jointly publish." So in 1858 was the the first joint publication of the idea, and um, Darwin is credited with the idea, and and I think well deserved because he had that argument, he had the 20 years mm-hmm. of evidence which he wrote. Rapidly, yeah. and it's a beautiful book. Mm-hmm. The, the, that fact that he was a um, a well-regarded scientist already, he was a well-regarded naturalist. Did that have an impact on how uh, how he was received, how the book was received, given that it was going to be controversial? I th- I think so. I, I think partly because he was a well-regarded naturalist at the time in Victorian England, partly because his arguments were very good, even in the abstracts of 19, 1858. If you read them. It just makes sense, you know. It just—it's so simple. And you, you know, I mean, there's lots of things that Darwin didn't know about evolution, you know, how things are inherited for one thing. But it just makes so much sense that even the first time you read it, I think anybody who's observed the world goes, you know, that actually makes sense. And it, you know, you don't need to impose anything special on what what's already happening in the world, the variation that exists. And he used, as Joe said, he used the argument of artificial selection. You know, so the idea that we can change one species into lots of different-looking things, mostly the same species, but they look completely different. You know, these things can be inherited, and there's variation to long-time. You know, nature can do it too. Yeah. Yeah. And and if you look at the opposition to the idea at the time, the opposition was mostly mostly came from a religious base rather than a scientific base, mm-hmm. and I think that's probably. The same is true today. 
if you yes. look at, um, you know, the Journal of Creation in the United States and the Museum of Creation, it is, <laughs> it is you know, it's driven by yeah. religion and ideology rather yeah. than any scientific argument with the theory. So coming back to the Catholic Church, <laughs> they um, accepted a misunderstanding of the theory early on. There, w- there wasn't universal opposition from religious folk and um, the idea that um, a creator could, at some level, we know not how, be directing the process. Well, that's not the simple and elegant theory Darwin had, but it was an acceptance early on of, um, of an idea that, that design could emerge through a process um, that in broad strokes was the process Darwin mm. described. They just wanted to allow a, a kind of scope for the creator. When Darwin reflects on religion in his own memoirs, there's quite a lot of speculation about this. Um, he notes all sorts of arguments against religion. The argument of religious variation, for example, that you accept the the beliefs of your parents and, and like is that might be the best explanation for why you have the beliefs. The idea of um, a kind of first cause, what what got it moving in the beginning. Um, the moral argument against religion, the idea that um, you would be punished for having a belief um, that was contrary to doctrine, you know, that's a damnable doctrine, mm-hmm. he said. And, and um, design only comes up sort of towards the end. You knock that out. That's just one kind of argument for religion. Um, or, um, and then ultimately says, um, you know, Design comes up again when he talks about his monkey mind, his inability to explain these abstruse mysteries of the beginnings of of all, of everything. And um, and that's why he contends himself to be an agnostic. Uh, if you follow the scientific method, we with laser-like focus, Joe will tell you, I can tell you about species, we z- zoom in with a kind of question, we try to answer that. Darwin left those other ones to the side, um, uh, at least... Uh, and again, uh, that seems to me there's, again, speculation. Was he trying to hide his beliefs? I, I don't think he had any kind of religious mm. conviction. I'm not saying he did. But uh, he was unwilling to make conclusions on the basis of the kinds of um, habits he developed about observing and testing. It's beyond us. Because there's a line in the, in the conclusion of Origin, or a paragraph, I guess, which is, from the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of higher animals, directly follows. There is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. That's the conclusion. That is the plus, yeah. And like you can almost see that there is room in there for the idea of design. He's kind of if, <laughs> and the, the later editions. Like five hundred pages, but the and, later editions yeah. were more exactly. explicit. Um, and the argument there is that he's trying to avert the kind of religious criticism. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I mean many things. We talk about Darwin, and we talk about evolution by natural selection. I mean, he had certain ideas, and most of his ideas were quite correct. But we've come a long way since then. Right? Mm. And people argue that you know, Darwin didn't understand that there's probably only one origin of life and not multiple origins of life. Or there might be some guiding principle that produces these things. Or he just wanted to hide the fact that there was no guiding principle. But we understand so much more about the, even the smallest and the largest details of how life evolved on Earth that we have to keep remembering that he started an idea. But we've gotten to the point 
where there is so much evidence that to go against or to criticize, you know, what Darwin didn't understand genetics. Well, we do now, mm. and it fits mostly with what he saw, that there's variation in organisms, that that variation is passed on, that that variation causes organisms to live more or less, leave more or less offspring. So it's all understood. Mm. You know, there is really no controversy, and the controversy comes from religion, from people who want life to have a purpose, a purpose, a natural purpose versus an internal purpose, you know. I think that's why the conversation. Well, there are, I, I wouldn't understate the arguments within evolutionary biology that um, had to get settled in the century after as well. The um, the synthesis of um, of of, um, of Darwin's evolutionary theories with uh, um, Mend- Mendel's ideas about uh, genetics. You know, population biology emerged. There were great debates over. And there remain great debates on evolutionary transitions and you know, so w- at what level does selection taking place? And, um, and how can we get um, the evolution of cooperating replicators? And, um, and, um, and, and you needed mathema- – you know, a whole mathematical underpinning had to um, um, be invented to, to, to make sense of, of, of those levels of selection issues, they still crop up. You, you'll, and, and the evolution of culture, people are wondering what's the unit of selection. Does, does evolution happen at the level of cultures? Mm-hmm. Um, we see a breakdown of the kind of classical selection process, or it looks to be a breakdown. That is, there is some invention, some guidance. The supply of variation looks to be directed. But how much of evolution applies there? there yeah. Well, it, it's nice. I mean, that's what science is all about, is to have different opinions and ask questions and yeah. disagree. I'm not sure that necessarily the you know the idea of group selection is well supported. No, no, no one believes and, in group selection, but, but everyone believes in multi-level selection, which um, has a, was given a, a, a mathematical support in the 1970s with the price equations. It's actually trivial. But what you need for that to happen is selection at the level of a unit – a higher unit being greater than the selection of the underlying units. And then you have – but no one doubts that yeah. – My fifth one, genetics is – But is, no, is, but group <laughs> selection is completely which, – which was this idea that the, the, we evolved to be working for the good of the group. Mm. That's just not in any way accurate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it could be in humans because of culture. Yes. Well, if there's selection between groups and if they're cooperative – I mean, just as your body doesn't break down, I mean, hopefully in, under normal – circumstances through through cancers, you know, wild, untamed, mutational process, we have systems in place that somehow manage this world of organization around us. And um, how do those systems work? And how do they tap human motivations and expectations? Those are great puzzles that mm. remain ahead of us that um, having a, a kind of idea of uh, design without purpose, but the idea that they, there is a kind of need for, um, at every level of biological organization, coordinating the activities of replicating units. That alone it can tell you where to look. You don't anyway, no, that's you don't okay. So. One, one of the things that, again, to sort of throw back to the Reformation, one of the things that is really interesting about Origin is that it's written in a slightly more simple way than lots of science was written, right? It's, mm. it's written in a much more digestible way, although I think lots of people said it was mostly for scientists, but there were bits of it that normal people could understand. I think it was for a general audience. In old Victorian English, you know, they use vocabulary that we're not used to nowadays. 
So if you look it up, you can certainly follow it mm. without it, having a scientific background. And it was very popular. The first edition sold out on the day of publication, and it was, it's been in print ever since. And pretty soon after the first publication, there was a paperback edition, a cheap edition, which was available you know, for everyday people to read. And they did buy it mm. and read it. And it was translated into many languages um, and was on sale widely in the United States. And I mean, I think that's quite interesting that that's one of the key ways this idea was disseminated was through production mm. of a book. And apart, apart from that, there were the public lectures that yeah. um, not so much Darwin, but Huxley was giving these lectures um, arguing for his idea. Is this the first example of science communication as we know it now? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> no, it, it was quite common in this time and the century before for these people going on these voyages of exploration to write narrative accounts of their travels that included, um, you know, elements of travel writing, a lot of science and often beautiful illustrations as well. So it was very common in this time for scientists to be communicating about their own work to quite a wide audience. People were clearly interested in it. They, 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 there was a, a thirst to understand the natural world. I think that's true. I mean, people do want to understand the world around them. And, you know, and that's what science gives us. It's given us the ability to understand, you know, from cosmology to biology, understand what the universe is made like, is made of, how it interacts with, how particles interact with each other, how organisms came about, how they evolved on Earth, what is the relationships of organisms on Earth. I mean, those are just interesting questions. And they kind of come back to our place in the universe. And I think that's, I think that's one of the big things that Darwin and the idea of evolution by natural selection has done, has actually placed us, you know, humans right in the center, or not even in the center, but within animals, within the evolution of life. We're not any special tree. We're not any special branch that's better or worse. We're just one of many things. And we're a species, and all species have diversity. All species evolve, and all species go extinct. And we just have to live with that fact because we are species. And you can absolutely see how for uh, uh, people of a religion, that's a tremendously challenging idea. Yeah, of course. Oh, well, I, uh, I think I'm going to get pinned as the guy that has a religion, but I don't. <laughs> no, no, no. But, um, um, I, um, I think it's perspective changing uh, no matter who you are. I think it's, it's a humbling idea. And there, uh, there are religious people who have humbling views about human uh, capacities. St. Thomas Aquinas was one of these people who thought that we could never get anywhere with reason and um, uh, we do get somewhere, I think. We are gradually understanding the world. We want to mm. understand it. Um, uh, but it is... Um, we, but we, we can't. We struggle. We haven't. I don't think there's... I mean, anyone who does science understands how we get a bit of inference, we get a bit of insight, and the car, you know, there's a bulge in the carpet and it just shifts, and yeah. there's another set of questions with no end in sight. Um, and I, th- I think when you begin to think of, of life from that Darwinian perspective, you are confronted with a humbling view of humans. But you also, and, and I interact with biologists mostly, although I'm in the humanities, and they're absolutely imp- like, look at this man. He loves <laughs> algae. You know, it's his favorite. Crazy. Who, who else would be, you know, but someone who's attending to the details of, of algae and, and, and thinks of them as the most fascinating species because... Yeah, I don't. I won't speak for you, mm. but I, I see others who 
uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Phil Lester, um, carries calipers around him. You know, so he sees a bug, he wants to measure it. You know, it gets bitten. He's the first instinct is to to be, to have a sense of wonder uh, at, at life. Um, so it's not all human shrinking. It, it's uh, it's enabling, and it has enabled, uh, uh, I think, um, a conception of nature which is um, fascinating. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there is a conception of nature, but there's also the evidence and the processes that produced that variation, that produced the nature yeah. we see, right? And I think, yeah. you know, it's not all human construct about how nature has come about and how things oh, are related yeah. to each other. There is there's a process that's just just like cosmology and production of stars. There's a process, a natural process that's produced everything. And... And we do understand a lot about it, and even if we don't want to believe it or want to add something more to it, it still happened, right? There's a truth somewhere. Oh, absolutely. Right? And yeah. it's a horrific process as well. It's terrifyingly... So in, in Darwin's... Um, That's right. That's where the, stokes, to the struggle how, for life the is suffering. the... So the argument from evil um, becomes confronts you very directly when you begin to think about how life is organized, there is a... Tr- and, and so, you know, Darwin is trying to speculate, is there more happiness or suffering? The suffering is apparent and um, and painful uh, to contemplate. Yeah, so, yeah. But it's not even... I mean, it's almost required. Maybe not suffering, but death is required. Yeah. Right? Because the only way you can change things is, you know, because of overproduction... So the idea is that organisms produce more offspring than can possibly survive. You know, if every elephant survived and produced two offspring, in 50 years there'd be elephants everywhere. And same with bacteria, same with everything. So everything overproduces. And most of them, 99.99%, die. Whether they hire a horrible death or bacterial death, they die. And that is actually required for natural selection to work because... We are selecting for variants that leave slightly more offspring than other variants. And if there wasn't 99% death, which there, you know, which is you can do in artificial selection, so humans do it a bit differently. Right? So when we can select, that's why we can change organisms and plants much more quickly. Um, so this is why we have to understand the process as well. Because whether you think that um, morality is just a way of making us feel good about ourselves or if you think that there are moral rights and wrongs, we do, most of us, want to make the world better for whatever reason. And um, given that desire, given that aim, we need to understand how the world works. We need to understand the mechanisms that give rise to design around us. We need to figure out do they apply at the level of, say, corporations of special interests? And to the extent that they do, what can we predict? What can we explain? To the extent that we want to limit, you know, the, 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 what we take to be, for whatever reason, vicious power of these systems, um, how can they be unworked? And the ideas can also be uh, misused. So the phrase survival of the fittest has, which I didn't know was only in the, I think, fifth edition, um, mm-hmm. not in the first one. But so the, the, that idea has been uh, misused from, taken, away, taken out of that process and misused for evil purposes, I guess. Yes. Well, there's a long history of humans abusing each other and the world. But yes, the idea... Of eugenics was used, you know, when an understanding of genetics and the idea that organisms did change with time was used for trying to manipulate the 
variation in the characteristics of humans. I'll throw a plug in here for uh, William Ray's Black Sheep podcast, which has an episode on eugenics, and it's brilliant, and you should totally <laughs> listen to it. Um, coming back to the uh, to sort of extinction and, and death, you mentioned the huia as your favourite um, species, mm. Rebecca. I didn't know. I didn't, in fact, know that Darwin came to New Zealand. He did. He came to New Zealand in 1835, um, and I was quite excited when I first discovered that because I thought, you know, what did he think? What did he say about the kakapo? You know, our giant carnivorous land snails, the amazing um, um, plant species we have here. But I don't know if he was sort of tired and grumpy after a long voyage, but he was singularly unimpressed with New Zealand. Um, he he stayed with some missionaries in the North Island and he wrote about their lovely gardens, the lovely plantings, um, and didn't really say much about New Zealand species. And when he left, he said, we're all pleased to leave New Zealand. It is not a pleasant place. Oh. But but at some level, it did leave an impression on him because he did write about New Zealand species in origin, you know, 20 years later. And I think it was quite um, prescient what he said. Um, I'm just going to read a little passage here. He, he said, Of all the animals of Great Britain were set free in New Zealand, then in the course of time a multitude of British forms would become thoroughly naturalised there and would exterminate many of the natives. And this was before many of the um, British species had arrived here, the possum and stoat and rabbit. And if we look at the situation we're in now... He was right. And having to have a, um, you know, predator-free New Zealand campaign, he was absolutely right. Um, and if you think about the way that we have changed the physical environment here um, with deforestation and a range of other changes and um, have introduced new species, it's all played out as he um, suggested that it would. Which brings kind of back to your point at the very, very beginning of the way that humans have, where we're a, lot, a lot of things hang in the balance and it's all our fault. Um, well, um, I don't know if, if it's all our fault. We, I, I, it's a complicated question. People are trying to live the best they can after their fashion. I don't know that, you know, values change as well and, and some many times for the better. So Darwin reacted, and Rebecca could tell us more, about, against slavery. Chattel slavery was a phenomenon, you know, very recently. Colonialism, and um, we have a long way to go on many issues. Women, we see this still. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, it's... Um, uh, people are acting after their own interests F, with a kind of horizon that's set from education and culture and sometimes it's um we have fear i i feel more like wanting to understand how that works and um and uh then and 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 trying to maintain a sense of optimism myself about human possibility we have done so much i I do think we are one species among many there isn't an ordering principle we were lucky um to get this far but we did get this far and um you know, as, as someone who has a daughter, I want us to go farther. Um, and um, and part of under, you know, part of the reason I hang out with folk like this uh, <laughs> as a humanities person is I, I want to understand how these systems work uh, better. Um, and if I don't have optimism, I don't know how you two feel, then I can't get up in the morning. There's <laughs> yeah. no point. Well, I mean, just because, you know, the evolution of life is not guided and not purposeful, Again, doesn't mean that we as humans shouldn't have a purpose. 
right? and shouldn't have a purpose towards our children, shouldn't have a purpose towards our society. And so I think that's one of the things that people find most controversial. If there is no purpose in life, right? if we came here by accident, just millions of years of evolution, natural selection, surviving in particular environments, then why should we follow any precepts? Right? There, is no, there are no rules and we can do anything we want. And I, I don't see that those two have to be combined. Right? There's, there's natural processes that produce the amazing diversity and the things that look designed to the nth degree and the way we live our lives. And I don't think just because these are naturalistic processes that don't have any benefit except leaving as many offspring as possible, we need to worry about it. But that's that's one of the main controversies that people have. They think because it is survival of the fittest, then the idea, and of course they have misconception of what fit means. You know, It's not how hard you can hit somebody, it's how many kids you leave. Mm. You know? And for that, humans have been obligate cooperators since before we were humans. No one can get through the world on their own. No one is a Robinson Crusoe. Everything in around us, from this glass to this studio um, to our, the orange juice we have, the, you know, many thousands of human beings responsible and interacting and coordinating in ways that make life possible. For the, so for the human life way, we needed to be cooperative. And for um, most of that period, it was in bands of, uh, you know, 100, 150 people, but they still needed to, to get on. Um, there was no, there is no choice outside of that. Now, well, now as we've scaled up very rapidly since the Holocene, the beginning of the Holocene, um, we're confronted with large anonymous societies, but they still rely on us getting along. And uh, that, that I know, cooperation is part of the, the story that has become um, important to tell. And there's quite a lot, lot of ink that's spilled over that story. Its limits, its capacity, its enablers. Well, there's been cooperation, you know, so these traits that humans have can be found in all oh. organisms, you know, so intelligence, pre-planning, cooperation between family groups. Bacteria. You know, and found in all kinds of organisms. So, you know, we think of ourselves as incredibly special and we have reached a certain mental sophistication, but all the beginnings and sometimes very sophisticated processes that we think are human have been evolved multiple times and certainly involved in our closest ancestors. You know, cooperation within groups, you know, pre-planning, all kinds of stuff. You know, all the great apes, mostly, at least some of the great apes do that. So, you know, we are just part of the natural world. Mm. Well, we see it in bacteria, you know, invertebrates as well. And, and these systems had to evolve. There need to be mechanisms that uh, align, you know, individual interest with group interest. They need to be, impl- I mean, in, within our own genome. The, you know, the sequestering of germlines is very important early in development so that the body doesn't compete with itself. All of that had to happen. But it, I think the, the message for me there is that it's not just um, competition between you know, things, replicators. There is a coordinated, uh, a capacity for coordinating complex designs that suppress competitiveness for, um, for the benefits, for the mutual benefits of those systems underneath. Yeah. But that only evolved because those organisms that had those particular characteristics had heritable exactly. characteristics for cooperation yeah. and they happened to leave slightly more offspring. Yeah. I mean, this is some of the reasons behind you know, why religions are still around and why particular characteristics because people who form these extra family groups you know, prefer each other and they 
feed each other when they're running out of food and they leave more offspring than groups where it's only small family groups and they don't form this community of particular beliefs or skin color or whatever it happens to be. So it's still the process is still mm. the same, right? It's still somehow it has to come back to heritable characters. And if it comes back to heritable characters, it has to be in some complex way that we don't completely understand in our nucleus, in our DNA. So that was the question that I was going to ask next is, is you know, the science is settled, essentially. Everyone agrees that that, that, that process works as, it, or the scientists agree that, that that process works as it does. But what do we still have to learn? That's a uh, really good question. Yeah, that's a tough <laughs> one. There, there's lots to learn. I mean, if we're going to stick with humans, I mean, there's lots to learn about, you know, what makes us believe the things we do and how our brain works and these higher level complexities, you know, how organisms, how cells interact with each other, how they signal with each other to produce memories, to produce feelings of particular kinds. But it, just trying to understand the world around us. I mean, I study organisms that I'm the only person in the world that studies them because I figured somebody should study them. <laughs> and why not, right? And it explains, you know, it's another example of how evolution works. And there's plenty to understand about speciation. And there's lots of organisms that are more, much more amenable to understanding the processes than humans, partly because we can breed them. And we're not really allowed to do that with humans, controlled breeding experiments. No. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of people trying to understand evolution. And, and what about when Darwin talked about the tree of life and now we've got an understanding that there is more of a web and that mm. there is a possibility of transfer of genetic material from one species to another. How much have we got to learn about that? Yes, I mean, there's, it's happened many, many times and it's continuing to happen. So to understand every, every transfer that's occurred would take a long time. Right? But now we know that it's more complicated. It's, as Rebecca said, I mean, I'm against this idea of the tree of life because I study what people would consider a twig and the tree of life, the way it's drawn, is always has a trunk. And when Haeckel and other people drew the tree of life, at the top, they'd always put man. <laughs> I think they meant men and women. <laughs> they may as not if, have. As if they may not have. Uh, you know, the idea is that there's a main trunk and then there's these side branches. And it's not the way it is at all, right? Every organism has the same history going back to the same common ancestor. There's one origin of life. And it's really a web, not a, partly, a, partly a bush and partly a web from these lateral gene transfer events and you know, lateral gene transfer events that have caused photosynthesis, the ability to make food out of light, and all kinds of organisms that we call algae that are not related to each other. They just took over photosynthesis from other organisms. So there's lots of interesting processes that produced what we see today. So you know, both understanding what happened today and what happened in the past is um, you know, something that scientists are just curious people and they just want to understand that kind of stuff. Curious people. You could, almost, you could almost ask it the other way. What do we understand? Mm. What question has been resolved, you know, with you know, complete certainty? And I have a friend who works at the level of, uh, of cellular sing signaling, and he was one of the kind of people that started synthetic biology. And I go to his lab, and they're trying to figure out how cells remain stable. And um, they, the mysteries abound at this border between physics and life. And uh, when he goes to neuroscience talks, which um, strike me as incredibly impressive, they model how the brain works. They um, execute experiments in animals that show that this, these are the computational processes. They have um, really lovely, ingenious methods. The, the cell biologists are, are, are kind of gagging because they, they don't believe any of it. They think that it's, it's just at the level of, 
system that they're used to, very little is explained. But um, it, so why? So why? The, another question might be: Well, if it doesn't explain much, why take an interest in it? Um, well, because in, in broad strokes, we get some place. We get a broad stroke understanding of the mechanisms of life. This, the, we get an understanding that it isn't designed, that it isn't directed, but that replication, you know, getting the next generation, becomes the important um, um, uh, aim of, a, of, of design in any organism's life. We can then begin to look at cultural features which are facilitating that, which then may stick around because they're good at that. Um, demographers, a footnote on what um, Joe just said, they are pointing to the differential birth rates between secular folk and religious folk and noting that um, without large deconversion, we can expect these very small but highly fertile groups like the Amish to take over the world you know, within several hundred years because of the fertility rates. Well, th those are actually... The models are correct, you know, so you need lots of conversion to overcome that kind of differential fertility. Um, so, um, those luckily, are some Amish do convert. <laughs> Sorry, luckily, some Amish do they convert. do, yes, yeah, yeah. Well, um, uh, so the um, yeah, so un understanding the systems, uh, uh, understanding the conditions under which they evolve, understanding the scope of evolutionary reasoning, the some things are directed, there is clearly non-genetic mechanisms in place. Epigenetics is a whole area of biology. But getting a grip on this uh, is important because, uh, I, well, for people who study humans, we have intrinsic fascination. Uh, there are many reasons you might study this stuff. Uh, um, people are interested in ancestral migration patterns and questions like that. But if you're interested in the future, you want to know how something works. If you want to <laughs> if you want to, if you want to direct the process, then you better understand how the process works. I think. And perfect way to end because if you're going to understand the process, you have to also understand where it came from. Mm. Here we go. My thanks to Dr. Rebecca Presley, who's sat here brilliantly with a terrible cold. Uh, Associate Professor Joe Zuccarello and Professor Joe Bulbulia. Great Ideas was made in association with Victoria University of Wellington. It was engineered by Phil Benge with production by Adam McCauley and our executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can find other episodes and more of RNZ's podcasts at rnz.co.nz. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.